You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning to you. My name is Matt Lulloy and I serve as one of the two pastors here. Uh, and you are apparently those who do not celebrate the high holiday of Columbus Day like some of your friends who have uh, ventured out of town this weekend. Well, uh, maybe that's a, more of a thing in some families than others that Columbus Day is like a, like a travel weekend. But uh, I know many of our folks are, are away with uh, family and friends and hiking and all kinds of fun things this weekend. Uh, but welcome to you. For, for whatever reason you find yourself here, uh, if you don't even know why you're here um, today, uh, it's a joy that you are with us in this room this morning. Um, and my hope would be that uh, it's an opportunity for you to, to engage with, with people who know uh, and claim to follow Jesus Christ, uh, to encounter uh, what God has revealed about himself in his word. And if you have one of those uh, black hardcover Bibles, you can go ahead and turn it uh, to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. Uh, page 401 is where today's text uh, is found, and we'll flip over into page 402 uh, relatively, relatively quickly there. Few things in life... Uh, are more dangerous or are more hostile than the rage of a defeated enemy. The rage of a defeated enemy. Uh, in his book, which is called Scandalous, an author and scholar named Don Carson, or D.A. Carson, uh, he gives two examples of this from the last century. So in World War II, uh, some of the worst fighting takes place after D-Day. Uh, after D-Day, the writing is kind of on the wall. The, the Nazi army is going to be defeated. It's almost certain at that point. But that's when some of the most violent and severe fighting takes place. About 50 years later, in the first Gulf War, uh, there are a, a quarter million troops show up. And when a quarter million troops show up, it's pretty obvious that Saddam Hussein's army is going to lose. Uh, but rather than allow them to surrender, he orders them to fight. And a large number of them in those days that follow are captured or killed. And then famously, they set fire to the oil wells in Kuwait on their way out just because they want to, just for vengeance sake, as a defeated enemy. Throughout these first five chapters of Nehemiah, uh, we've, seen, uh, we've seen Nehemiah and the Jews of Jerusalem experience opposition. And as we've seen that, it's taken different forms. It's been both external and it's been internal. Here now in chapter 6, uh, we're going to see the opposition intensify. And it's going to intensify because, as we'll read, the walls are now built. There's no breach left in the walls. The only work that's remaining left to do is to build the gates. And so the enemies of Jerusalem, they're panicked. Uh, their opposition efforts that they've been undertaking for a long time now, they're about to fail. And so in response to that, they aim directly for Nehemiah. The attacks become personal. They become multi-pronged. They become desperate. Why? Because it's their last-ditch effort. Because it's the rage of a defeated enemy. We'll walk through this passage this morning and we'll, we'll unpack um, some of the tactics that they use. But consider this. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but that we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, for those of us who, who follow Jesus Christ, the people of God, Satan is the great enemy. Satan is our great enemy. 
we read in the book of Revelation, he's depicted as this hideous dragon seeking to devour the church from, from its earliest moments. So since Jesus established the church, uh, Satan's singular aim has been to destroy it. And as people among that church, the opposition that you and I will face, not only today or in any given day, but for our entire lives, this is likewise the rage of a defeated foe. At the cross, Jesus has dealt the decisive blow to Satan, to sin, and to death. It was, in a very real way, the the D-Day victory of the kingdom of God. Jesus' death and resurrection sealed and vindicated that victory. So though we do not see yet the complete fulfillment of it, though Satan and sin and death still in our day very much rage, they do so precisely because they know they're on borrowed time. Satan knows that he has lost and he's resolved to wreak as much havoc, as much destruction as possible before his time is done. Before we read this text, just a quick word um, to those of you who aren't Christians or who are considering perhaps Christianity. Uh, When Christians speak of this cosmic battle between good and evil, uh, when Christians speak of the existence of Satan, it can sound fanciful. Uh, It can sound mythological. And I completely understand that. Without the chance to really get into a long explanation of things, let me just offer this to you this morning, if that's where you find yourself. Uh, For 2,000 years now, it's been the explicit aim of Christians to deal with reality. To deal with reality, both seen and unseen reality. And not to be, not to be reductionistic, not to escape, not to seek to avoid reality in any way. And so if you find yourself wrestling with like, well, isn't this mythological or fanciful? I just would invite you to consider this. If by categorically ruling out the supernatural, ruling out anything that we can't see, are modern people perhaps actually the ones that are more blinding themselves to reality in its entirety? Are, are, are modern people and the sensibilities of, of modern people today actually more being reductionistic than Christians are? Furthermore, though it's used this way sometimes inappropriately, the existence of Satan is never, for the people of God, meant to be an excuse. It's never meant to be a way to do away with or diminish human responsibility for our actions. It's instead, throughout Scripture, the existence of Satan and spiritual forces of evil, throughout Scripture is offered as an explanation for why such hostility always has and does and will always, until Jesus comes again, exist against Jesus and his people. And so with all that in mind, I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Nehemiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and then reading through verse 14. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, And let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them the same. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. 
And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king, meaning the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Verse 10. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, as we have now heard your word, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth and shape our wills that we may desire your ways. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. As God's people pursue faithfulness to him, as they pursue doing great work for God and his kingdom, they must anticipate that their enemy, their opposition, will employ at least four tactics. That opposition will seek to distract, dishearten, deceive, and discredit. Distract, dishearten, deceive, and discredit. They're all D words. Um, we worked really hard to make them all fit into that, so I hope you appreciate that and it helps your outlines. But with the rest of our time, uh, we're going to walk through how we see that play out in Nehemiah chapter 6 and also how we then might expect that to play out in our lives today. So first, first, opposition will distract. Come and let us meet together. Uh, on the surface, this request here in verse 2 is natural. Normal, even good, perhaps. Uh, Nehemiah is the governor of Judah, which at this point in history is a territory within the Persian Empire. Sanballat, who we've met before in this book, he's the governor of Samaria, which is another Persian territory just to the north of Judah. And the plain of Ono is an equal distance from both of these places. So it's as if Sanballat is saying here to Nehemiah, hey, I know we've had our differences. I know I've opposed you in the past, but as governors, we're still going to need to work together. We're still both minor officials of the Persian Empire. Let's meet together to talk. Uh, my wife and I recently have been making our way through the TV series Madam Secretary. Anybody familiar with this or, or seen it? Uh, it's given me uh, more appreciation for the importance and the complexity of diplomacy uh, and the relationships that exist among nations. 
And so we can read this part of Nehemiah, we can think, well, yeah, diplomatic relationships, dic- diplomatic negotiations, those are good. Open lines of communication between nations, that's critical. Probably this is a meeting that Nehemiah should take. Except that the work is not done. The walls are done. But as we read, the gates aren't in place yet. The work is almost done. And as many wise counselors have said to me over the years, almost only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. It's not completely done. Now, forget for a moment that this whole thing is actually a conspiracy. Okay, Sambalot isn't really interested in dialogue. He's interested in killing Nehemiah so that the work is going to stop. But even if he's only wanting a conversation, that conversation, the travel time to and from the plain of Ono, the, the mental and the physical energy that that's going to require is a distraction from the most important thing, from the thing that Nehemiah must do at this moment. And that's actually how Nehemiah responds. Though he suspects treachery, he doesn't accuse his enemies of lying. He doesn't accuse his enemies of conspiracy. He simply replies, verse 3, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I come down to you? Distraction is a subtle and yet incredibly effective oppositional tactic. Uh, The subtlety actually makes it hard to realize it's happening until it's actually underway. A few years ago, I read a great book that was put out by Harvard Business Review um, called Leadership on the Line. And the authors in that book, they relay the story of a friend of theirs who rose to a high level of leadership in her organization. And she was put there to lead uh, by her superiors through some really important changes and some new initiatives. But she was also opposed by many people that reported to her. Now, those opponents of hers could not overtly attack her. They couldn't do that because she had been put there by, even, by people even higher than her. So instead, what they did was they employed a tactic that the authors referred to as diversion by inbox stuffing. Diversion by inbox stuffing. They sent her so many emails and scheduled so many meetings with her that she would never actually be able to get to her primary work, that she would be distracted from the real thing that she was put in that place to do. And this is not only a tactic of Nehemiah's enemies and corporate politics. It's a tactic of Satan, of our enemy. C.S. Lewis highlights this rightly in several places in his famous book, The Screwtape Letters. Often, direct assault, direct assault is too obvious. If you and I are going through an immense period of suffering and trial in our lives, if we're in a place in our lives where we're wrestling with deep questions and doubt, the desperation of that place is apt to make us realize our need and to run to Jesus. And so a far more subtle and therefore effective tactic is diversion, distraction. And not only with temptation to sin, although that certainly can be part of it, but also with things that are completely fine, things that are good in and of themselves, but that collectively keep us from the most important work, the great work, as Nehemiah calls it here. And whether you find yourself in a leadership role or not. Each of us has great work to do in the kingdom of God. Each of us has been designed by God, empowered by his Holy Spirit with gifts that the church and the world need. And each of us has been put into a neighborhood, into a vocation, into a school perhaps, wherever else you've been put 
so that you might be present there, so that you might be attentive to God and his work there and see where he's working and step into that. We've all been put into an expression of the local church to love and to bless and to serve the other people there. And all of this we might collectively call our great work for God and his kingdom. So where are you susceptible to distraction? Or where have you, in evaluation of yourself, where have you become distracted? Where might even a good thing in your life be distracting you from the right thing, from the necessary thing? Work, though good, can become consuming and can become a distraction. Hobbies and recreation, though good, though necessary, can become time and resource intensive and therefore distracting. And email and TV and music and reading, much of which can be beneficial and good, but the constant noise in our ears all the time will distract us. It will blind us and it will deafen us to the opportunities that God is putting right in front of us to labor for him and his kingdom. Second, second thing, opposition will dishearten. Not only distract, but dishearten. After four requests to meet together, uh, Sanballat changes his approach. Uh, he accuses Nehemiah and the Jews of Jerusalem for, uh, with building these walls and these gates because they intend to rebel against Persia, because Nehemiah intends to set himself up as a king of this new territory. Now, this is not a new accusation. It's the same one, actually, that shut down the work on the walls years earlier as recorded in the book of Ezra. It's an accusation leveled already against Nehemiah back in Nehemiah chapter 2. But the new facet to it here is that now it's no longer a private accusation, it's now a public one. It's not a sealed letter to Nehemiah, as diplomats would do, seal letters and send them one to another. As we read there, it's an open letter. And James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way. He writes, an open letter would have been a red letter. It would have been read scores of times during its progress from Samaria to Jerusalem. And the message would have already been repeated widely by the time Nehemiah received it. In other words, as in the case of all gossip, the damage was already done. So Sanballat here essentially writes an op-ed publicly accusing Nehemiah of treason. And as we all know, once something like that is public, well, the court of public opinion is now in session and a verdict is reached, irrespective of what the facts actually might be. Lesser known part of history, Sanballat would later go on to become the founding editor of the New York Times. <laughs> I, might, I might get in trouble for that one. I might... <laughs> But in addition to discrediting Nehemiah, which we'll talk more about in a minute, the aim here is what? The aim here is to dishearten him. Rumors and propaganda and wrongful conviction in the court of public opinion. Few things in life are more disheartening than that. Why? Well, because if it's not true, you have to say that immediately and plainly, just as Nehemiah does. He goes, this is insanity. You are making this up out of your own mind. But who's going to believe him? Who's going to believe him? Hopefully some will, but not everybody. Many won't. And the doubt and the distrust has already been sown. The poison is already in the well. And it makes the road forward that much harder. And that kind of additional opposition, that will wear you down. It will make you want to lose heart. It will make you want to throw your hands up and say, forget this, who needs it? Who needs it? 
I've never experienced anything close to the depth of what Nehemiah faces here. Uh, but even in experiencing this on a much smaller scale is for me among the most disheartening and discouraging experiences of my life. It's hard enough when you and I are trying to labor together in the great work of the kingdom of God, whatever that might be for each of us individually, but when people then misrepresent or misinterpret that, and when they do that publicly, those are the days, those are the days that I'm closest to wanting to quit. And that is precisely the goal of an enemy. Nehemiah's enemies and our enemies. Satan would love for the church and its people to quit, to, to throw their hands up and say, forget this, who needs it? And because of this, there will be times in our lives where we, are, where we will be misunderstood, misinterpreted, misrepresented. And not just in our friendships with other people, with those who aren't Christians yet. Actually, more often, it will happen among people who are Christians. It will be something that Satan uses to create division and distrust between people who are meant to be allies. So three quick things on this here. One, expect this. Expect this. It's normal for other people to misinterpret and misrepresent you at times. That's not when that happens to you. That's not a unique form of persecution. You're not the only one to ever have experienced that. It's actually a tactic that Satan loves to leverage to hinder the advance of the kingdom of God. Two, when you do hear a rumor or gossip or a smear campaign against someone, in that moment, suspend judgment. Seek understanding. Wherever you can, assume the best, because you're going to want that from someone else toward you someday. Assume the best, and wherever you can't assume the best, do the hard work of then finding out the truth. And then three, when this happens to you, when you're the object of misrepresentation, recognize the limits of what you can control. Speak the truth plainly, clarify everything that you can, but then, like Nehemiah, pray for God to strengthen your hands and keep going. If you try to regain control of the narrative, if you try to convince everyone that the rumor's not true, if you insist that there never be any uncharitable perceptions of you out there, then we will never do anything of value for the kingdom of God. And we'll be distracted, constantly reacting to those things and not doing the most important thing. We'll fail even then, we'll, we'll fail to convince people anyway at the end of the day, and it will just be used even more to dishearten us. So expect it, be charitable toward people, assume the best as much as you can, and when this happens to you, recognize the limits of what you can control. Cry out to God to strengthen your hands, and then keep going. Third, opposition not only will distract and dishearten, it will deceive. It will deceive. When distracting him, when disheartening him doesn't work, uh, the enemies of Nehemiah here, they resort to deception. Uh, they hire some Jewish prophets and prophetesses. An impressive chorus of discouragement is what one scholar terms it. An impressive chorus of discouragement. And disguising an enemy message in the voice of a prophet makes it that much more believable. It makes it that much more deceitful and likely to be believed. Though this apparently happens more than once, the instance that we're given some detail on here in this chapter is with a man named Shemaiah. 
And he says to Nehemiah, let's meet together in the house of God. Let's meet within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. We can't really pick up on this in the English translation of these words, but in the original Hebrew, these words are actually written in couplet form. Uh, It's like an oracle. In other words, uh, they're presented not just as a suggestion from a friend, not just a suggestion from like a brother, a fellow Jew. They're presented to Nehemiah as a revelation from God through one who is designated to be a mouthpiece for God. So it would be the equivalent of saying, Nehemiah, God told me to tell you that you should seek refuge in the temple. That's kind of like what it would be like for Nehemiah to hear this in maybe more modern vernacular. God told me to tell you that you should go seek refuge in the temple. Of course, God has said nothing of the sort. Only priests were allowed in the temple. And Nehemiah is not a priest. For him to accept, for him to heed the words of this oracle would be, for, would be to explicitly violate the commands of God, the, the word of God. But it's deceptive, isn't it? It's deceptive. It's different from Sanballat and Tobiah saying, hey, let's get together and talk. Like We, we automatically treat our enemy's words with a level of scrutiny and suspicion. But a prophet or a priest of God, th- these are voices that we're supposed to be able to trust. These are believable Voices, they've maybe even given good, sound counsel in days gone by. So how do we avoid being taken in by deception when it comes at us like this? How do we avoid deception when it comes at us like this? The answer, the answer is that we have to take personal responsibility to know the word of God. There is safety, we read this in Proverbs, there is safety in a multitude of counselors. There is a healthy way to not trust ourselves too much and to be constantly in community, known in community, inviting input into our lives. But none of that can be, none of that is meant to be a replacement for our own personal commitment to know the word of God. Discernment, right? This ability to perceive what is good and what is evil. This ability to perceive what's right and what's wrong. This is not just a spiritual gift to be practiced by some, It's actually a command meant to be followed by all. In the book of Romans chapter 12, we read, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so reading our Bibles, internalizing scripture, hiding God's word in our heart, as the psalmist puts it, these are not just good disciplines. This isn't just something that Christians do because Christians do it. As the substance and the source of discernment, it really is the difference between life and death. It's how we know in any given moment whether we are listening to the voice of God or the voice of Satan. Satan is a master of deception. He masquerades as an angel of light, the Apostle Paul writes. In the Garden of Eden, he deceived Adam and Eve with the line, didn't God say... And after 40 days in the wilderness, he tried to deceive Jesus by quoting, by misquoting, really, parts of the Old Testament. And though they may not be hired by Tobias and Sanballats, there remain today those who occupy the seats of ministers of Jesus Christ who abuse that position for their own financial gain, like Shemaiah does here, who abuse their position by disguising their opinions or their personal preferences or whatever else 
as the word of God and manipulate people into sin through that. The wickedness of this, the, the brazenness, the audacity it takes to be a mouthpiece for God and to attribute to God something that actually has been said of Satan. Jesus says it would be better to tie a heavy stone around your neck and to be drowned in the sea than to do that. God will call this into account. Nehemiah's prayer here in verse 14 that God would remember the deceit of these wicked people and bring it into judgment. That prayer will be answered. So what I would say to you this morning is this. Leave the judgment and leave the vengeance to God. But take personal responsibility to know his word. Because in this way, you will be able to discern the deception of your enemy, the truth from the lie, the voice of God from the voice of Satan. Fourth and finally, opposition will discredit. Discredit. In verse 13, we read about the enemy's purpose behind the deceit. That Nehemiah, it says, would be afraid, act in this way and sin, so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So this is an attempt to discredit him. To discredit him. And how would this discredit him? Two ways. First, it would discredit him through fear. By, by baiting him to put his own safety ahead of the work. To hide out from the danger. To call his people to a price that he himself is not willing to pay. If he's deceived by this false prophecy, he's going to be discredited as a coward in this critical role of leadership that he occupies here but he'll also be discredited through sin. As we said, it's a violation of God's law for anyone except the priest to enter the temple. And so if Nehemiah does that, not only does he look like a coward, but all the credibility that he has been building up, that he has built up to this point by his faithfulness to God, immediately is called into jeopardy. Immediately his reputation takes a hit, maybe even tanks. And in the eyes of the people, he goes from this faithful, courageous leader to a faithful coward who's not worth following. This tactic is similar to the open letter that Sanballat sends in that it goes after Nehemiah's reputation. But it's a different audience. It's a different audience. The letter is attacking his reputation among the nations, the people of the Persian Empire around Jerusalem, around Judah. In Jerusalem itself, they would quickly identify the lie. Nehemiah is not setting himself up to be a king, and they know that. They know that. But if he enters the temple, violates the, the command of God in that way, his reputation is now jeopardized internally among his own people. And for a leader, internal credibility is so much more important. A good name, it says in the book of Proverbs, a good name is better than great riches. A good name is better than precious ointment, Ecclesiastes 7. You can withstand attacks on your reputation externally from the communities that you're part of. In fact, we expect some measure of that. People that don't know us, people that have different agendas than we do, we expect some measure of our reputation tanking outside of the communities that we're part of. But few things are more effective in derailing an effort, in derailing an initiative, than when the leader is discredited internally. And this is also one of Satan's tactics against the people of God today. And so much that we could say about that and explore about that if we had the time, with what we've got left today, let me just draw out one implication of that. 
And it's to ask you, it's to plead with you as I do with myself to pray for Christians in places of public leadership. Pray for Christians in places of public leadership, in business, in politics, in education, in the church, any other form of public leadership. Praise God that there are men and women who labor and who lead in these places. The world needs that. The church needs that. But there is a unique vulnerability and a cost that comes with it. It often feels like you've painted a bullseye on yourself when you sit in one of those seats. Imperfect sinners that they are, Christians in leadership will fall woefully short. May God grant them the humility and the courage to own it when they do. And thank God that credibility comes not only from doing the right things, but from repenting when we do the wrong things. So may God grant the courage and the humility for Christian leaders to do that when they need to. But may God also grant that the vulnerability and cost of these roles not leave the world without Christians in these critical places in public. Now what hope, thinking about all of these things, what hope do you and I have to stand against this kind of opposition? Satan, who is the enemy of our souls, rages against us. He distracts, disheartens, deceives, and discredits. And as grateful as we are for Nehemiah's example in Scripture, we need something far better than Nehemiah's example. At least I do. At least I do. Because unlike Nehemiah in this account, I at times most certainly do become distracted and do grow disheartened and do believe lies, and do act in faithless, cowardly ways. We need more than an example to follow. What we need is the salvation and protection of one who doesn't just remain faithful in a critical moment like Nehemiah does here, but who remains faithful in all moments. So thank God that in this text, Nehemiah is not setting himself up to become the king. Instead, in rebuilding the walls and the gates, his life and work, along with the lives and the work of all the people around him, they point forward to the day where a king will sit on the throne. Will sit on the throne not only of this Jerusalem, but of a new Jerusalem, the heavenly city. The day where a king in the line of David will rule forever, and as the psalmist says, will make his enemies his footstool. This king is Jesus Christ. And in Matthew chapter 4, after these 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, Satan comes and he seeks to distract, he seeks to dishearten, to deceive, and to discredit. All of these tactics are on display there. Tempted in every respect, in every way that we are, Jesus in those moments remains faithful. And then in his continued faithfulness, by his death and resurrection, he accomplishes our salvation. He accomplishes the decisive defeat of Satan. And so church, expect and anticipate opposition in this life because Satan is a defeated enemy who rages. This is normal. But as you experience that, likewise, expect and anticipate the day when the God of peace will crush Satan underneath your feet. Though he rage, thanks be to God, he will fall. Though he rage, he will fall because the one who belongs on the throne, the true king, Jesus Christ, has accomplished your salvation and now rules and reigns forever. Amen. Let me pray for us.
almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word. And not only for your word that you've revealed it to us, but what it says is the true story of the world, that Jesus, yours is the victory. And that we get swept up into it by our faith in you, by the work that you have done on our behalf. Pray now that you would grant us the grace to believe what we've heard uh, and to live our lives in ways that honor you above all else. And we pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.